0: Warm welcome to all of you, whether you are regulars at this event or whether this is the first time that you've come, welcome in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to this men's ministry time. My name is Brian McGreevy and I'm the Assistant to the Rector for Hospitality Ministry here at St. Philip's and uh, one of the folks who helps coordinate this and we are delighted to have you with us. Uh, there are two uh, announcements that I wanted to make before I introduce our speaker and Both of these are in the spirit of the fact that it is a new year, and so there are some new things that we're going to be trying uh, with the men's lunch, and one of those is we are going to begin offering a prayer ministry time immediately at the conclusion of the lunch. If there is something that you would like for someone to confidentially pray for you about, um, please come down to the youth room just down the hall And our prayer ministry team, which today is Doug Ringer and Bob Coons, would be delighted to pray for you. So uh, we will be offering that each month immediately after um, the luncheon. The other thing is from time to time we're going to have a book plug. And uh, many of us are people who are looking for a good book to read. And since it's the month of January, I wanted to give a warm endorsement of this book called The Common Rule. I don't know if anybody in here knows this book. It's by a man named Justin Early, who is a lawyer uh, in Richmond. Don't hold that against him. Uh, But the book is basically about the importance of habits in growing in your walk with Jesus Christ. And January is a time where many of us make resolutions. Um, I would commend this book to you for a thoughtful approach about looking at habits that enable you to grow deeper in your faith in Christ. So with that, uh, let me turn to introducing uh, Ben Haygood, who probably needs no introduction to most of you. I've known Ben for a long time. Ben is a lifelong member of St. Philip's Church. He's had an interesting and varied professional career, serving as an officer in the Marine Corps, uh, working as a lawyer for over 30 years. Uh, being a member of the South Carolina House of Representatives. He's held about every office that you can hold at St. Phillips from senior warden on down and uh, currently is our chancellor and heads our home mission committee. Ben is also involved in the choir and the praise team here. And over the past number of years, he has had a battle with cancer. And it is something that has been a Difficult journey, I think, for those who love Ben and his family to watch. Uh, ben and his wife, Penn, and their daughters, Nancy and Daryl, uh, have been just rocks through that whole time. But one of the remarkable things is to see the way that Ben has wanted to use this journey as a witness to the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. So without any further ado, I want to turn things over to him. Please welcome Ben Hagood.
1: Thank you, Brian. Let's pray. O God, the light of the minds that know you, the life of the souls that love you, and the strength of the wills that serve you, Help us so to know you that we may truly love you, and so to love you that we may fully serve you, whom to serve is perfect freedom, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Honestly, I thought I'd given this talk uh, back in September 2012 when I came and talked to this group about uh, getting through cancer. And at that time, I was two years past my uh, initial diagnosis of a blood cancer known as multiple myeloma. It's a blood cancer that can attack bone and it had attacked two vertebrae in my neck. After I'd had surgery to get my neck fused, about six months of a smart drug chemotherapy, and then a stem cell transplant using my own cells, I'd been in remission for about a year when I came and talked to this group. I talked about how God had guided and strengthened my family and me through some very difficult times. But I confessed at the end to struggling with the words from the epistle of James to count it all joy when we go through times of trial. Honestly, I did not feel joy, but I had begun to see how he was shaping me and using my life to his glory. So fast forward to May of 2017. I had begun to dream and to plan for the future. The previous summer I'd committed to my dream sailing trip. Uh, an old law partner, uh, T.J. Johnston, who turned uh, priest, who turned Anglican bishop, who uh, loves to slip away and sail. He and I conjured up uh, a, a dream sailing trip for his sabbatical that we were gonna do in May of 2017. We were gonna charter a boat out of Tortola in the British Virgin Islands, and six weeks later, turn it in at Grenada and sail with her family's uh, uh, island hopping down. So it was five days before I was to get on that airplane. It was May 10th and I went over to MUSC, to Hollings Cancer Center, where I'd been a patient since the uh, original diagnosis. I went in for a routine blood test and a non-chemotherapy infusion that I would get every couple of months as part of my maintenance regimen. And when I was back with the infusion nurse, she said to me, The doctors buzzed and he said, he'd like to draw a little more blood to rerun some tests. I thought, okay. And um, a few minutes later, she said, why don't you stop by the clinic on the way out and talk to your doctor and he'll tell you why. And I thought, okay, usually when things at the cancer center go out of the ordinary, it's not a good thing. An hour later, I'm sitting in his office, he walks in And he's deathly serious. He says, I think you've got leukemia. And I said, what? He said, I think you've got leukemia. I'm going to rerun some tests, and I'll call you in the morning. Well, Penn was out of town, as was my mother and Maybank and Jimmy and sister-in-law Elizabeth and a lot of St. Philippians on that wonderful trip that Jeff uh, led to the Holy Land. And she was due back in, uh, in about uh, 10 days, and she was going to join me down in the Caribbean a few days later after she'd gotten back. So I didn't have my immediate support system there with, uh, with Penn, and so I kept this to myself. I was at a family birthday gathering for Jimmy's daughter that night, I remember, and I just had this surreal sense. I, I, it just, I couldn't get my mind around, it. and I remember Walking home after that with the words "leukemia" going through my mind, I just said, "I just can't understand this The next morning, we had a Bible study at at my house that uh, hosts every Thursday morning with a group of men, and it was going to be our last session before breaking for the summer and There were really only two people who showed up that morning, uh, Mark Bouton and john boatwright and i wasn't even sure I was going to share it with them I just I, I just was still trying to get my mind around this. Well, about halfway through, it came out, and the next thing I knew, they had their hands uh, on me and were praying for me, and it was an extraordinary comfort. Ten minutes after they left, the phone rang. It was my doctor, Dr. Stewart. He said, you better come in. I said, am I going sailing? I said, no. He said, no. So I spent the rest of the day in his office doing the full workup. It turns out that I had Uh, 90% leukemia cells in my bone marrow and my blood even though I had had clean tests uh, just months before. You know, honestly, I was bewildered and sort of tried not to be angry about the timing of this thing. Another cancer coming back right before this sailing trip, but my doctor, well, I should add, I almost skipped that visit because the way it worked out, I had my infusion right before going on the trip, but when I was to get back, I was gonna see him six weeks later and we're gonna do the same blood test. So I thought, well, maybe I'll just do this one. I think fortunately I didn't. My doctor later told me that if I had not gotten proper medical care within two weeks, that I likely would have died. And if I was island hopping in the Caribbean, the chances of finding the right medical care uh, within that two weeks um, would have been questionable. So that's how it started. I didn't go on that sailing trip. The next Monday morning, I uh, got dropped off at uh, MUSC to get a port put in my chest while TJ and his family and Daryl went to the airport uh, to head to the islands. It was a lonely moment, I'll be honest with you. Uh, Nancy was staying back because uh, she had a medical board she was supposed to start studying for. And uh, she came in and checked on me after I was pretty much through the procedure and she had dropped them at the airport. but. That began a pretty lonely week. Honestly, I, I remember uh, that, that week, one night, laying in my room. I was ramped up on industrial strength steroids, which is something they gave me to, uh, to treat the cancer blast. You know, I had tears in my eyes. Um, I visualized my own funeral over at St. Philip's. I could kind of see the casket in the church. And uh, I, I, I'll, I'll never forget that week. It was, it was a lonely week. And I remember uh, thinking Nancy was finding time to get studying on her uh, board exams like she was supposed to have started. And I later came to find out that she, after she kind of put me in the bedroom, she went upstairs, collapsed on the floor being wiped out. And it, it was a tough week for both of us. Penn came home that, that weekend, but uh, she came home with a pretty nasty travel bug from being over there in the Holy Land. And we weren't able to be in the same house for a week. So. Nancy was on duty a second week. That's how it started, the May, June, July period of 2017. I essentially had four weeks of what they call induction chemotherapy treatment and four weeks of consolidation. And basically induction is where they try to put it in remission and then consolidation is where put the foot on it and stamp it down hard. I was in home quarantine, my blood counts were down to, virtually nil I was uh, for the doctors I was uh, severely neutropenic and normally you go through that kind of treatment in the hospital um, my doctors nice let me try it at home and it worked it, w- it was a battle um, numerous different chemotherapies including stuff that was in injected into my uh, my spinal fluid to make sure the leukemia didn't get into my brain fortunately it did not we had to have constant vigilance over um, making sure I didn't get an infection, either from uh, germs or bacteria in my own body or those uh, around me. I think I was taking 36 pills a day. Um, we had some bad days from the chemotherapy and, and my neck pain, but we also had some good days. Um, I tried to stay positive, but I confess there were times when I cried out, you know, why me? Why a second time? Why now? Um, Thanks be to God, the treatment went well, and I've just, I'll just i be eternally grateful for the many, many prayers and acts of friendship of so many friends and family members and regular visits from the clergy at St. Philip's bringing, bringing me communion and encouragement, and I'm extraordinarily grateful for the constant care uh, from my girls, for Penn, who became the full-time caregiver once she got back in the saddle, and Nancy as she was juggling medical school and Daryl traveling over from Georgia where she was working that summer as much as possible. And I'm just so grateful for the exceptional skill and just real loving care from my oncologist, Dr. Stewart and his team. Dr. Stewart said pretty early on that I should be looking at an allogenic stem cell transplant. That's a fancy word for a transplant using somebody else's cells. What I did before was something called an autologous stem cell transplant, which used my own stem cells. The allergenic using someone else's cells is a riskier procedure and it's normally not done unless you really have to do it. And Dr. Stewart felt like because of this high risk leukemia that I should do it. I was told that usually your siblings are the best chance for a good match. So my three brothers were uh, wonderful and were eager to be tested. They did not uh, test out as a, as, a, as a full match. And so they went to the national database, something uh, known as Be The Match. Uh, and fortunately, I found out I had numerous matches in the national database. And it was an extraordinary relief to, to hear that, that I had that hope for, for finding a donor. It's all anonymous. It's not that they go, you go and find people to try, it's all about your DNA and different blood markers. And so this national database is really a lifesaver uh, for many people like me. And what they told me was they were going to try to find the youngest, healthiest, most perfect match who was still available and willing to donate. And I said, go forth. <laughs> um, you know, I, we did all the work up, I did all the, the, the chemotherapy through the summer. Uh, I was told that they had a good match and they were working on him. I got a 10-day chemo holiday uh, near the end of July. Uh, I even had a chance to have a little bit of fun. I got out for a sailboat race one Wednesday night and drank a cold beer and ate a plate of fried oysters. Uh, Next morning, I got admitted to the Ashley River Tower. They are the bone marrow transplant unit on the seventh floor at MUSC. First week there, more chemotherapy, whole body radiation, and final testing and preparation for the stem cell transplant. August 3, 2017, my new birthday, I had um, a, a bag of cells show up and were infused into me through an IV line, and it all went well. I spent most of the month in the hospital, and my blood counts went down to virtually zero basically what happens with a stem cell transplant is with the chemotherapy and the radiation, they essentially uh, poison or kill your own immune system and, and white blood cells and the cells that are related to all of that. And as they're dying out, they, uh, the way this works is that the, the new stem cells start growing new white blood cells in a, in a new immune system. But there's a point in time there where you virtually go to zero. And you, you stay there for a little while. And you're hoping and praying that this thing's gonna work and the new immune system's gonna start growing. I've told people, I said, you know, this is an amazing thing that they've learned how to do, modern medicine. And it seems like a great big chemistry experiment. But the fortunate thing is that I'm not the first person they did this on. So feel very blessed. They've been doing it at MUSC since uh, 1987. It was the first stem cell transplant there. So I spent most of the month in the hospital. This process worked for me. I remember getting discharged on uh, on the day of the eclipse. I think I was quite a scene with a bald head. I went out to watch the eclipse with some of the MUSC staff and, and Nancy. I had a mask on, I had some eclipse glasses, and uh, I think I was, uh, I was quite a scene, but I got out of there. And uh, I continue to marvel at the care and the skill of the bone marrow transplant team at MUSC and just have immense gratitude and respect for them. So I've been told that Once you go through this process, that there are a number of risks that you need to be wary of in the first year. There's a risk that you don't have proper engraftment, that these new cells don't fully engraft and don't fully do what they're supposed to do. There's a risk that they do too much and they actually attack your own system. Something called graft versus host disease where the engrafted stem cells can attack host cells, not just blood cells, but skin, Various organs, lungs, liver, that sort of thing. So, you know, there are a fair amount of things that could go wrong. I was told that I'd be rebuilding my immune system, and it would probably take one to two years. And I'd be coming in for regular checkups, and we'd see how it goes. Well, everything, thanks be to God, went according to plan. Seven weeks past uh, the transplant, I got the results from my blood test that 100% of my blood cells had been produced by the new donor cells. So I had zero of my own cells uh, in my immune system and 100% from the donor cells. At the one year mark, uh, all of my bone marrow was clear of leukemia and multiple myeloma. None of the blood tests had shown uh, any signs. Dr. Stewart said, you know, a whole lot of bad things could have happened in that first year, but they didn't. So hallelujah. I was hospitalized twice over the, really the first two years, I guess. I, I, I had to go in for a, an infection when I got salmon, salmonella in my bloodstream. And then I also got pneumonia from uh, the RSV virus, which is something that I think babies typically get. I see Malcolm nodding, he's heard of that. But uh, those hospitalizations went fine. And I think it was just all part of my immune system, learning how to do what it's supposed to do as an adult. I want to tell you a little bit about learning about my uh, stem cell donor you 're not allowed to reveal your identities between the donor and the uh, and the recipient for the first year, but you could write to one another anonymously and I recall that first Thanksgiving after the transplant that i I just received the news of the successful engraftment of the hundred uh, percent donor cells in my body and i I really was overwhelmed with thankfulness and so I, I wrote him an email an anonymous email I told him a little bit about myself and how grateful I was. I said, I I don't know much about you, but I've been told you're a young man in your early 20s in the United States, because a number of people on the uh, registry are in Europe. And I also knew that he must be a generous person because he was willing to give of himself uh, to another, someone he didn't know. I received an anonymous email back from him, and he said the process of giving the stem cells went smoothly. And I quote, he said, donating was one of the greatest joys of my life. The opportunity to donate bone Marrow was the most rewarding thing I've ever done. I still kind of get choked up when I think about that. He grew up in a strong Roman Catholic family who had taught him the golden rule and the value of helping others. He said God had brought us together, that he'd been praying for me, and that I had given him great joy and happiness, and that I had helped him in many and immeasurable ways. Needless to say, this was a remarkable young man that I wanted to meet. So after the one-year mark when I was able to uh, send the email to my and fill out the form with Be The Match and send to my uh, coordinator to disclose my identity, I did that, and I was hoping that he would do the same. Not too long after that, and a, again, a Thursday morning Bible study it just occurred to me. I asked the men. I said, pray for my donor. I just, I've uh, really been thinking about him and hoping that I'm going to learn about him, and, and we prayed for him that morning, and After the Bible study, I looked at my email, and there was an email from Thomas Hayes, a 21-year-old from Lexington, Kentucky, who identified himself as my stem cell donor. He told me a little more about himself. He had loving parents, a great community of friends. He uh, was educated in Catholic schools, was a soccer player, avid University of Kentucky Wildcat fans, uh, although he followed his father's footsteps to Ohio University, and he was in his senior year studying business and computers. I came to learn a little more about the story of his donation. On his 18th birthday, he uh, was at his high school and you have to be 18 to donate. So this was on his birthday. And coincidentally, there was a drive at his high school that day. And they were looking for volunteers. Uh, At first he hesitated, but then he realized he might have a chance to save someone's life. So he immediately stepped forward. It's a pretty simple process. Uh, of just getting a cheek swab and filling out all the identifying information and mailing it off and then it sits in the registry. And he didn't think another thought about it until he got a phone call in June of 2017, while I was enjoying all that chemotherapy. He got a call from a New York area code that he thought was a little strange because he didn't know anybody in New York. And the caller asked if he'd be willing to submit to some additional blood samples because he was a possible match for a blood cancer patient. He was told that only one in 750 people in the registry get a call like this, and not everyone was willing to do it when they got the call. Thomas later told me, he said, when I got the call, I was surprised, I was excited, and of course I said yes. Uh, Later that summer, uh, a few weeks later, he was vacationing with his family uh, on the coast, uh, just north of South Carolina. He was contacted again and was told he was a perfect match for a leukemia patient and was asked if he'd be willing to come to Washington, D.C. for final blood work and testing. He left his family vacation and traveled to D.C. and did the testing. A few weeks later, he made a second trip from his home in Lexington to D.C. to donate on August 2nd, the day before the cells were uh, uh, infused into me he went through uh, what most people go through with the stem cell harvest these days is a non-surgical harvest of stem cells back in the old days I think you kind of had to drill your spine to get them out now it's a peripheral blood stem cell transplant and they give you some um, drugs that mobilizes stem cells into your into your system and essentially it's hooking up to an IV uh, the blood comes out goes through a centrifuge Uh, Machine where they separate the white blood cells and the stem cells and then the blood gets put back in. He said it was about six hours. It wasn't that big a deal. Uh, He spent the night in D.C. He was a little tired the next day, uh, but other than that, it went fine. He later told me, he said I was truly blessed by God to be given this opportunity. Let me pause for a moment and uh, reflect on what it means to serve others. I mean, Thomas was living the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Christ gives us this command in the seventh chapter of Matthew, and I think it's a universal truth of humanity in so many ways. I mean, we're all image bearers of God, and I think we have this innate desire to help others, even sacrificially, by giving of ourselves. But Christianity is the greatest witness to this truth. Christ, the Son of God, he came as a servant to suffer and to die for us, In the Gospel of John, he says, Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Paul in the epistle uh, to the Philippians writes, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. As I've mentioned, I've been extraordinarily blessed by so many who have given of themselves to serve me my girls, my family, the MUSC team, my brothers and sisters in Christ here at St. Philip's, all of my friends praying and encouraging me. But Thomas showed us that the blessings can come not only to those being served, but to the person who is serving. You know, we know the words from the Book of Common Prayer that in the service of Christ, there is perfect freedom. I think there really is a joy and freedom in serving others. I've often reflected on this I think innate desire that we have that God gives us and what a blessing this must have been uh, and is for Thomas at age 21 to learn that he has truly helped save another person's life. Let's fast forward now to May 10 of 2019, two years to the day from when I had that diagnosis. Thomas and his mother Peggy came to Charleston. Uh, he had graduated from college the weekend before and we had arranged this trip for him to come to Charleston to get a chance to meet for the first time and meet my family. We met at the Charleston airport and I, I, it, was, it was exciting and it was fun. We toured MUSC at the Hollings Cancer Center Clinic and the Ashley River Bone uh transplant unit on the seventh floor. Met Dr. Stewart, some of the team. Thomas was treated like royalty. Uh, I'll never forget Dr. Stewart uh, took one look at him and then turned to me and said, you're going to live a long time. He's a, he's a healthy young man. <laughs> and then he turned to Thomas. He said, you may not know this, but Ben got a two-for-one. A successful stem cell transplant with donor cells is considered a cure, not only for multiple myeloma, but for uh, the acute leukemia. So thanks be to God. Uh, Thomas shared his story. We both did it, uh, video interviews, and uh, he also spoke with the staff that we met. He's eager to tell our story so that more people will get on the uh, bone marrow registry. And I did want to make a pitch for that today. If you are between the ages of 18 and 44, and I know there may be one or two of us here that don't meet that, but but I'm, I'm looking in the back of the room, and I think I see some people under 44. You are needed on the registry. Research has shown that the younger the donor, the more likelihood of success for the transplant. So I wanna ask you to please consider being a donor. There are many patients that need a match. You can learn more at bethematch.org or you can sign up at joinbethematch.org. In fact, you can get information from this table here afterwards today. Really all you have to do is register your information, swab your cheek, seal the swab with the barcodes that are there and send it in. You can do all that at home in about five minutes. So the kit here has the swab code, Florence is gonna help hand out for anybody who would take one afterwards. And it's got the barcodes in the envelopes with the swab kit. And then all you have to do is either go to the website or text this number that's over there or use a QR scan. And then that gets you to the website where you can put your information in. And it's, it's a simple thing to do. We love meeting Thomas and Thomas's mom, Peggy. And I'll I never forget she told us that when Thomas was contacted, she being the mom, I guess, was a little nervous a little anxious, she said, you don't know what kind of guy this is who might get this thing, you know, he may not be such, he may not be such a good person, so, you know, you don't have to do this, I'm sure there are other people that can do it, and she told me that Thomas turned to her and said, mom, if I have a chance to help somebody, I'm going to do it. Thomas' story, um, was a blessing to the, uh, to the incredible staff at MUSC who had served me and my family in so many ways. A few days after his visit, I, res- I remember getting a text from a member of the t- team over there who said that seeing Thomas and me together was a great encouragement to all of the team. I quote, it made my heart swell with love for all the goodness in this world. Some days here are simply awful, but it's days like last Friday that make me feel like the luckiest person in the world. So what a blessing. Um, that weekend in May really was a wonderful time of joy and blessing. Before the weekend was up, I had a chance to uh, have an informal meal with me and to uh, introduce Thomas as, uh, to my brothers and my parents and the rest of my family as my brother from a different mother. Um, but let me share with you just a couple of amazing revelations of our time together that weekend. While touring MUSC, Peggy turned a pen to me and said, Do you know Jim and Ann Edwards by any chance? Um, she said, Yeah, of course I'm sure uh, almost everyone here knows of the the former Jim Edwards who was the governor of South Carolina, secretary of energy, president of MUSC, and a member of St. Philip's for a a number of years, and very good friends of my parents. And um, I'm sure many of you know Anne, uh, just a lovely, wonderful, faithful lady who lives in a beautiful house in the old building that she calls Ob Joyful. And uh, Penn and I recently had the pleasure uh, at that time recently of getting to know Ann even better through one of our church's supper club groups. Peggy told us that her father was best friends with, um, with Jim Edwards in dental school at the University of Louisville. And that as a child, she recalls coming down in the summers with her father to visit the Edwards at their, at their home in Mount Pleasant. And so at the end of our tour, we just happened to be standing in front of the James B. Edwards School of Dental Medicine. And I said, uh, Peggy, would you, would you like to see if Ann's home? I actually, have her cell number here. And she said, could we? Uh, minutes later, we were on the way. Ann said, come on. And we had just a wonderful time where Ann told stories of Thomas's grandparents. Uh, uh, Dr. Edwards actually introduced them uh, at, at school. And... Peggy loved hearing stories about her mother. Uh, it was funny because uh, Ann said, I remember, I remember your mother. She was a lot of fun. And Peggy said, fun? My, my mother had 10 children. I just remember her being tired. But uh, so it was really fun to see Peggy receive the blessings, reconnecting and hearing new stories of her parents uh, in their younger years. And I had the opportunity, I had learned that it was, it was Jim Edwards who had given Rob Stewart, my doctor, the go-ahead in 1987 to perform the first bone marrow transplant in South Carolina. And and listened to all of this, and we talked through all of this, and she paused at one moment. She said, this is a God thing. And I say amen to that. It is a God thing. And there are some other coincidences really too great to be random uh, that, we recognize that weekend, you know, Thomas and I are both Christians. we were both raised in Christian households. Thomas uh, described how it was his faith that motivated him to register and to donate. He, when he went to Washington, DC, he had to go to the Georgetown University Hospital where not only my daughter went to school, Nancy, but that's where Dr. Stewart went to, uh, went to school. And Thomas's uh, paternal grandfather actually died of leukemia when Thomas was young. And Thomas did not know that until he had become a donor. Um, so it was, it was just a wonderful weekend and we, I asked Thomas, I said, you haven't been sailing before? And he said, no, I really hadn't. And I said, "Well, come back in September. Our sailboat team always does the Leukemia Cup Regatta where we raise funds for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And he came back and spent the weekend, first experience on a sailboat. I think he had a great time and he was an inspiration to uh, many who participated in the regatta uh, and who've raised funds for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society for many years. Had a chance to uh, bring him to worship here at St. Philip's on Sunday and introduce him to the choir and to, to many, many friends and brothers and sisters in Christ here. And it was, it was another wonderful weekend. Let me, as, we, as I finish up, reflect on the blessings that um, come from telling your story. And I do thank you for giving me the opportunity to uh, tell our story here today. You know, I've often been inspired by these stories of others, frequently in these men's lunches. But there's something powerful about learning to tell your own story of uh, burdens and hardships and how God is faithful even during those times. Last year, I watched a TED Talk by Donald Davis called How the Story Transforms the Teller. And Davis described how his father, after a severe accident as a young boy, was eventually told, now it's time for you to tell your story. You're not telling the story to change what happened. You're telling it to change you. David said that when something bad happens to you, it can sit on you like a rock. But if you begin to tell the story, you get to crawl out from under the rock and sit on top of it. I love that image. Culture today preaches us to tell our own story and to deliver our own truth. But Christ teaches us that we should learn to understand and tell our own story and to see it through the lens of faith to seek to align our own story with God's story. In the Gospel of John, the fourth chapter, we have the story of the woman at the well whose life and whose story was transformed after hearing the true story from Christ. She had had five husbands and was living with a sixth man, and Jesus knew her story without her saying a word about it. After meeting Jesus and witnessing the sign of his omniscient knowledge and being offered living water, she left her water jar and, and told the people of her Samaritan village about this man, Christ, who knew all that, he had, that she had ever done. The people believed when they heard her story, but they believed even more when they met Jesus face to face. In the fifth chapter of Mark, we have the story of Jesus healing the, uh, the man possessed by the demons and uh, expelling the demons into the herd of, the swi- into the herd of swine. And Jesus tells the man to go tell your story so that others may know how much God has done for you and how God has had mercy upon you. You know, I've struggled honestly with how God has healed me but has not healed in this lifetime others who've walked similar journeys with faith and surrounded by many, many prayers. I do believe that for those who turn to Christ, we will be healed, whether it's by the wonders of modern medicine, or whether it's by a miracle in this lifetime, or whether it's in the next life, but we will be healed. I can only testify to my own experience to what Christ has done in my life and how he has poured out his mercy upon me. And as I've learned to crawl out from underneath this rock, I've learned that God does shape us through trials, that he is always faithful, that if we let him, he will surround us with people who are willing to love and to serve us and that no matter what the outcome, he will never forsake us or let us go. I've learned, and I'm still learning, to set aside my pride and to rely more on others. I've learned to seek and rely more on the power of the Holy Spirit during times of pain and in the trial, and in living with a physical disability and in walking with others who are suffering. I've learned, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, that God's power is made perfect in our weakness, and that his grace is sufficient for us. Those of you who know me know I love to sing and I uh, dabble in a little songwriting. I'd like to close with a song that I wrote that uh, comes out of uh, this cancer journey. It's called Dance. Well, thank you for allowing me to tell my story. To God alone be the glory. And I encourage you to share your stories of faith, of hardships and blessings with others. And if you're 45 or under, come pick up a swab kit. <laughs> if you're over 45, or I think it's 45 and older, 44 and younger, and you're willing to donate $100, they will take your, uh, uh, your DNA and have it in the registry, but they ask for uh, a donation to uh, cover the cost. Thank you very much. God bless.